0: Lord, help each one of us this morning to have eyes and ears open to what you want us to see and hear and learn. And I pray that our time together this morning is such that we know that we've heard from you, that we've met with you. Honor yourself, Lord, and help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning is entirely different. Uh, This is not a standard teaching. You know, normally you come in on Sunday morning prepared. Uh, for a teaching. This is not going to be a standard teaching at all. And on one hand, I apologize for that. On the other, <coughs> uh, that's for a reason. This will take a minute to load, so we'll get this started. Um, <coughs> as you know, we're in First Kings. And it's one thing to read the text. And by the way, the text of the Bible is inspired. The CD photos are not. Uh, but, The hope is, in looking through something like this, uh, a set of slides, that it's just slides of a model. And by the way, frankly, I bought this CD, no disrespect intended, after I'd seen the model of Herod's Temple on CD. And the quality of this is is, uh, far inferior to the model of Herod's Temple. Uh, But it'll still be helpful. And what we'll do this morning, this will be more like a Sunday school class and it will be a standard teaching what we'll do is we'll visit through this series of slides. <clears throat> we'll co-opt that with a description from 1 Kings 6 and 7. My hope this morning related to this is that it gives you something in your mind's eye that when you read these scriptures or these stories, you'll have something in your mind that you've seen, something to scale or whatever that gives you some idea of what we're talking about or what the temple from Solomon's time on might have looked like. Um, You know, most of the time when people think of the temple, they're not thinking of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple from Solomon's period in the 900s destroyed about 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So for about a 400-year period of Israel's history... This temple was the one that all the, any stories or any kings or the altars, any way in which the temple comes up, it's this temple. And then the temple that you think of from the New Testament, frankly, doesn't look anything like this or <clears throat> very, very different. If you remember historically when the exiles from Babylon come back, they rebuild a temple. Ezra and Nehemiah talk about that. Haggai, Zechariah a little bit. And it's fairly small. It's smaller than this one, far less glorious than this one. And that's built in the 500 and 400 BCs. Then Herod comes up, and Herod in part, this has nothing to do with this temple, but anyway, it's just history. Uh, Herod wants to gain favor. You remember, he's not a Jew. Favor with the Jewish people, so he sets about on a building project, and one of his building projects was the temple. So he took the second temple, and he spent all of his years, and this is interesting to me, he spent the last of his days, remodeling and expanding the temple. And then that work continued to, 78, to 69 A.D., and that temple was destroyed the next year. And it's said that both this temple and Herod's temple were destroyed on the same calendar day of the year. Does that make sense? A uh, long period apart, but on the same day of the calendar. And so what, we'll start with this slide, and I'm just going to read from 1 Kings. I've excised through. You guys, if you want to, can turn to 1 Kings 6 and 7. That's where most of this text comes from. And we're just going to walk through the slides. We're going to read the dimensions, and hopefully when the morning's over, we'll have something in our mind's eye that we kind of have a suspicion of what the temple looked like, the dimensions, etc. With this one up and starting from 1 Kings 2, this is rehashing some of the things we've already read, but... The house which Solomon built for the Lord, its length about 90 feet, its width 30 feet, its height 45 feet. And by the way, depending on a commentary or a Bible you read, these dimensions might be different. Uh, It used to be understood that a cubit was about one and a half feet, about 18 inches long. If you read some commentaries, they think the cubit, for a number of reasons, was probably about 20 and a half inches long. Well, on large buildings, this makes a difference on the number, on the dimensions that will be listed. So you may see dimensions listed that are bigger than this, but these are approximate anyway. So about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall. And see if this little thing will work for us. The dimensions it's giving are from the back up to the front, right here where this storehouse area ends. This is the porch, which we'll read about. This is separate. But this front, probably about 45 feet tall and the total length here, about 120 feet. Let me finish reading this, and then we'll put some perspective related to the building we're in. So 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall. The porch in front, that's the one with the pillars and the tallest portion here, 30 feet wide and 15 feet deep. So this was as wide as the rest of the temple and added 15 feet onto the front of it. The side chambers all around the lowest story Seven and a half feet wide, the middle 9, and the third 10. And uh, we'll see some of these later too, but this is the temple proper with the tall roof. And then around the sides, both sides, there were three stories of storage rooms. Uh, they would have stored all kinds of things they needed for the temple area, and that's what you've got here. So this, when you read the dimensions of the temple proper, it does not include these storage rooms. The reason these get wider with each successive story is because the walls here on the temple that comes up and here on the outside that come up, they get narrower with every story up. So let's say those foundations are five feet wide at the base. When you go up to the next story, maybe it's four feet wide. When you go up to the next story, it's three feet wide. And by doing that, and the text actually talks about this, the floor supports rested on these offsets in the wall. So the rooms get wider because the Walls get narrower as you go up. <clears throat> okay, and let's see, for perspective, if you drove up to this building, to Care Paravel School on this east parking lot, this temple that we're reading about would be about half as wide as that front of the building you see from the air conditioning units to this corner, about half that width. It's about as tall or a little taller than the peak of this roof, not the eave that you see from the parking lot, but the peak of the roof, and about half as wide as this building is. So just like this, that gives you some perspective. Oh, maybe, maybe it's wider, a little bit wider than the, than the theater that we're in right here. So long triangle, fairly tall in front. From 1 Kings 7, uh, this tells us that King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. This is not King Hiram. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Natali. His father was a man of Tyre. So he has a Jewish mother. And he has, uh, his father is from the city of Tyre, a Phoenician. He was a worker in bronze. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all the work. So the things that we read about now, they're the things that Hiram made. They're the, the bronze works that Hiram from Tyre made. First Kings 7 at 5, he fashioned the two pillars of bronze, and let's see if I can get the right pictures here. And by the way, before I go on, I'm going to have a hard time doing this, guys. This is this is the model, and this is looking at it straight on. So the the graphic that you saw in the last one, this is the model's approximation of about the same thing. You can see much taller than it is wide as far as the building proper goes. Then we'll look at the rest of those details here in a little bit. Let's see. So the two pillars that you'll read about in 1 Kings 7, he fashioned two pillars of bronze. 27 feet was the height of one pillar, both of them actually. The line 18 feet measured the circumference. He made two capitals of molten bronze to set on top of the pillars, the height of one, seven and a half feet. There were networks of twisted threads of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars, seven for the one capital and seven for the other. He made the pillars two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals which were on top of the pomegranates, and so he did for the other capital. The capitals were of a lily design, pomegranates 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave. The nave is just the central portion of the temple. Uh, the right he named Yakin or Jachin, that is, he will establish, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz, in strength. So he will establish in strength. So for the priest, if you were going into the temple, this is what you'd walk between, these two very tall pillars. And 27 feet tall uh, were probably about that height in this room here. So these were big. You know, when you look at the pyramids, you think, gosh, how they do that? Well, the elements of this temple would have been like that too. We've read about foundation stones earlier and how big they were. But the size of the brass objects that were fashioned here were immense. And you're talking about people with mules and oxen to do their work. And all of this had to be poured. Um, By the way, it mentions at the end of this passage in 1 Kings that this was all done near the Jordan River, and they know archaeologically they've dug up areas that were used for bronze casting areas in the past. They don't necessarily know that they tie to this temple building, Um, but this this was a huge thing to pour and to set up things this big. So you've got the pillar proper and then you've got this two-tiered capital, pomegranates, chains, and this lily design. Each one of those is named. Okay, 27. Let's see. This is another look from the model. Are we? I don't know if we're very well focused. You guys see that okay? And the same here from a little different perspective. And again, the doors, we won't actually be talking about the doors. We read about these last time, but if you remember, the doors were of olive wood, and I think of, uh, I can't remember the other wood's name anyway, with carvings and decorations, and then covered with gold. Okay. Okay, the sea and the stand... We'll look at this for a minute as we read the description. The sea in the stand, 1 Kings 7:23. He made the sea of cast metal, 15 feet from brim to brim, so a 15-foot diameter. And you can see on their scale, this is actually probably pretty close. This would be 15 feet across, <coughs> circular in form. Its height was seven and a half feet. So you know, if you think your home, uh, the ceilings at your house are probably eight-foot ceilings. So if you put this bowl in your house, it would go almost from floor to ceiling. It's that tall. Its circumference was 45 feet. Under its brim, gourds went around encircling it, uh, each foot and a half completely surrounding the sea. So you can see here they're showing you that right underneath the brim here. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three west, three south, three east, Uh, their tails towards each other. It was a hand-breadth thick. Its brim was made like the brim of a cup as a lily blossom. It could hold 2,000 baths. This is roughly 10,000 gallons. So you've got a very large bronze bowl sitting on life-size or better bronze bowls. And you can see if our friend here is about six feet tall, this thing is way up there. This is huge, it's immense. This was cast by Hiram as well, and that gives pretty good perspective. Okay, and basins, uh, let's see. I may entirely lose my place on this, let's see. These aren't in the order I wanted, and I couldn't manipulate the uh, frames to get them to come out the way I wanted. Uh, You can see in this picture, these are the stands and the basins that we'll read about here for just a second. He made ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was six feet, its width was six feet, it was four and a half feet tall, so we're talking here six feet by six feet by four and a half feet, just this part. Uh, On the borders between the frames, lions, oxen, and cherubim, and on the frames, a pedestal above and beneath the lions and oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports beneath the basin, cast supports with wreaths at each side. So these are basically just a portable stand. And then on top of them, First Kings seven thirty-eight, he made ten basins of bronze. One basin held forty baths. This is about two hundred gallons in each one of these bowls on top of each stand. Then he set the stands five on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house and he set the sea on the right side of the house eastward toward the south. This may actually be backwards on this uh, photo. If you read it, the orientation and the description is looking out the temple and south would actually be to the right. So I don't know if their images are backwards or they're they're meant to be viewed the other way, but I think the altar and the... the, uh, large sea would be opposite of what they actually show here. So this says, Hiram finished doing all the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. He made the basins and the shovels and the bowls, the two pillars and their capitals, the networks, the ten stands with the ten basins on the stands, the sea, the oxen under the sea, the pails, the shovels and the bowls. None of these show but of course there were all the utensils that had to go along with the sacrifices that would be made. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Then not mention... I don't know why in 1 Kings not mentioned is the altar and of course as you look at the front it stands out more than anything else. This altar is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 4 where it says he made a bronze altar 30 feet in length 30 feet in width and 15 feet in height. Now as you'll see later regarding the Holy of Holies, this altar is about the same outside dimensions as the Holy of Holies is and Unlike the altar that they had at the tabernacle, the altar was not supposed to be so tall that priests would have to go up to it. Uh, they weren't, they weren't spo- it was supposed to be at their level. It doesn't tell us why. This was built much taller, 15 feet tall. So, you know, if you stood on this stage and going up to the edge of the, the balcony, that would be somewhere close to the height of this altar. So it obviously necessitated the staircase it's thought that just the outer portion of the altar would have been bronze and then the interior would have been filled in with earth and or stone. So that they would have been, the burning would have actually taken place here on top where this guy is standing, this priest is standing. Let's see, 20s. And you can see one standing and one going up. And... The same thing here. Well, on the temple's interior... By the way, let's see. That first one was 15, wasn't it? Let's go back to that for just a second. In this depiction, you can see that, and we'll see some more of these pictures in a minute. We've got gold floor here. This is meant to be stone that comes up to the doors that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and then stone here. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. When it gives the dimension of the Holy of Holies, it's not as tall as the rest of the building. It's 30 by 30 by 30. So it's a perfect square. By the way, when you read the dimensions in the New Jerusalem, it's 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500. It's a perfect cube as well. For whatever reason, the description of God's special dwelling is a perfect cube. To accommodate the difference in the height of the Holy of Holies, Lane Rittmeyer, who is the gentleman that this information is from, he thinks that this was a rock scarp that was left in place and it came up part of that dif- the distance that was the difference between 30 feet and 45 feet. And that the other was the drop in the roof. It's thought today... This has nothing to do with anything almost. But where they show the Holy of Holies here, if you go to Jerusalem today, Lane Rittmeyer and some others think that when you look at the rock in the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque that sits there today, there is a little flat area in the middle of that rock. And he believes that that is exactly where the Ark of the Covenant sat that they flatten out that portion of the rock so that it would be a flat place to set the ark. So in this, when you look at these pictures, and you'll see some others here in a minute, he understands, and this model is based on this area not having a golden floor like everything else did, but rock only, and if you went to the Dome of the Rock today, if you look at the flat part, he understands that's where the Holy of Holies sat. By the way, there are Orthodox Jewish groups today who are planning for the rebuilding of a new temple on this site. Many of them will not even walk on the Temple Mount because they're afraid that they would uh, desecrate the holy place of God, that they're not a Levitical priest, and so they shouldn't be walking up there. Okay. Where are we at? We're in the Holy of Holies, 35, okay. Okay. This is their depiction. This would be looking down from the ceiling sort of. And here, let me just read this. uh, The inner sanctuary made two cherubim of olive wood. Each was 15 feet high. So from the floor to here, their head or so would be 15 feet. But also it tells us that their wings were 15 feet also. So if you came into the Holy of Holies, and you and I wouldn't be able to do that if we were there, those, those statues would stand about again from the stage to the top of the the um, rail here in the balcony. And then you can see a little better in this one that their wings would span, since this space is only 30 feet across, wing tip to this wingtip would go from one edge of the Holy of Holies towards the other, and then underneath in the center would have been the Ark of the Covenant that you can see here. And this would be the rock scarp going down towards the holy place. This is just an artist's rendering, obviously, of the Ark of the Covenant. This text doesn't really get into this. This would have been kept, the Ark of the Covenant would have been the one that was made during Moses' time. Apparently nothing else in here would have been original to the tabernacle. And It never tells us what happened to those issues or to the other items, the original altar of incense, the original table of showbread, um, some of the other utensils. A big question today for many people is where's the ark? <clears throat> Some people think they won't um, build a new temple without an ark. I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. Some are convinced it's underneath the Temple Mount today. There's at least one Jewish rabbi who, who spoke and said that he saw the Ark of the Covenant underneath the Temple Mount. As you guys probably know, the Temple Mount today is under uh, Muslim control. When the Jews conquered uh, Jerusalem in 67, they took over the Temple Mount again and I'm not sure what all the motivation was from the folks that were involved in this, but they gave back to the Muslims control of the Temple Mount even though Israel controls the area around it. Uh, Most of the Jews who settled Jerusalem, you may know, or Israel after World War II were atheists. They were not Orthodox or even Reformed Jews. This may have been a way for them to leave a hot potato alone by saying we don't control the Temple Mount. You can't take that mosque down and start another war. Hard to say. So the Ark of the Covenant, and this would be... Solomon, This we'll talk about this a little later. We'll see in Chapter 8. But these would be two more cherubim that sat on the mercy seat. They would be looking down, and then their wings would be covering this area. This is just a chest. If you guys... uh, if you had a chest, a moving chest, that's about the size of the ark. And it had golden poles that were used to carry it. This would have been, it was just an empty box apart from what they put in it. In Moses' day, it had manna, it had Aaron's rod, uh, an almond rod. It had the Ten Commandments. In Moses' day, it'll say in a later text, I believe that, uh, gosh, I forget now. There's no Aaron's rod, there's no manna. It might just be the tablets, I think, during Solomon's period. When God came in his glory in his cloud, he hovered or his presence was seen His visible glory was seen around or above this mercy seat. Okay, and I'm on 40. You can see what I mean about, we're, I'm glad that we have visuals, but these are not the greatest models in the world. And this again. So without the room... Wingtip to wingtip, they would have occupied all the space of the Holy of Holies. Um, 1 Kings 7, 48, Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord. And let's go to 43. And it doesn't say much. In fact, dimensions are not even given for these. But this would be the altar of incense, and you'll see these pictures in a minute but this would have sat right in front of the doors that went into the Holy of Holies, and this would have been the place where the priests would have come in routinely, daily, to put incense on the altar. In fact, if you think of the new uh, Zechariah in Luke's Gospel, the Christmas story about the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah was probably going in to either put the incense on or the showbread or whatever. That would have been the daily things that would have been done this would have sat right in front of the doors. And this is another big difference between the two temples. This temple had no veil. We'll close with a text out of Hebrews. You know, most of us think about the veil of the temple was torn, and that's the image in our mind. This this temple had no veil. It had doors. And so the doors would have routinely, we assume, been closed. It talks about God dwelling in the darkness of the Holy of Holies. This would have been right in front of those doors, and the priests would have had incense on this daily. They would have been coming to this. And after that, the, uh, the golden altar, that's for incense, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence or the show bread. And we've got two of these. If you remember back in David's day when he and his men fled from Saul and he went to the priest to Ahimelech, He asked him for food, and he said, We don't have any food that you can eat. All we've got is the show bread, which was for the priest. The priest would have eaten this after it had sat in front of the Holy of Holies, and that was the bread David ate in that emergency. And then utensils... Oh, actually, lampstands. One more. Let me get one more. This would have also been a little different, and we'll see on uh, the holy place. These will be in place. But there were ten of these... Just like there were ten basins for that water outside the temple, there were ten of these lampstands that lined the holy place. So if you were a priest and walked into the holy place, it would have been lit, and there were also windows in that area, but it's assumed once you went into the holy of holies, there was no light. There were no windows. There were no candles. It would only have been the, the appearance of the cloud of glory of God that would have been the only light in that area. Okay, and actually I've got some, I'm missing something guys, let's see, we didn't see the slides of the holy place, did we? Well bear with me because I'm going to run through these until we find them. Here we go. These are two pictures, but you could see this would be taken from the ceiling looking down. This one's too dark to see, but the candlesticks would be lined along here. These are priests coming in that there would be oil in this that needed to be filled. And this is another one. So this would be the front of the temple faces east, so this would be morning sun coming through. And remember this was all cedar wood brought from Lebanon and then it was covered with gold on the floor. And then the walls, I thought maybe one of them showed that a little better. The walls had been carved with cherubim and pomegranates and fruit and then was covered again with gold itself. So everything in the holy place you would have seen would have been gold. There wouldn't have been anything but gold in the holy place. And then it's a little harder to say in the holy of holies whether the floor was or not. Let's see. Let's go back with that as a backdrop um, when you look at these models uh, the model is here just to show us what the building looks like and the dimensions it gives you some idea of what the scale is what it might have looked like that's that's helpful but you know if you go house hunting and you go into an empty house uh, you know the dimensions, the rooms, the outlines all there but the life that occurs in the house isn't visible in an empty house, is it? And when you see this, um, this is kind of the empty house, and I don't mean about the Holy of Holies that God's not there, but this never looked like this once once those doors opened. Are you with me? Once this place was open for business, so to speak, it didn't look like this clean model. It looked like your house or mine when the magazines are out, and the dishes aren't done, and there's one thing and another out because there's a lot of activity. So think through this for, with me for a minute. The temple is the place, we talked about this before, God said, I want to dwell with you, and so you obey me, and, and I'll live with you, and this is where I'll center my presence, in this temple. So it was a place for God to meet with Israel. On the other hand, this was separated from the people. You couldn't just walk up here And in fact, remember that you couldn't... This doesn't show the wall here. We'll read a passage out of Leviticus here to gain some perspective, but even though God's there, you can't get to Him. He's in the Holy of Holies, and you're locked. The Holy of Holies is back there, then the holy place, then the priest's court, and then the wall, and then maybe you. Or if you were a woman, a little further back, or a Gentile a little further back. Again... On one hand, God's presence is there and is close. On the other, there are walls and separations that were meant by God because there's this sin issue. So what I mean about this model making a a clean picture, this isn't what it would have looked like once it was open. And We'll read about that next time when Solomon dedicates it. But uh, listen to this. This is from Leviticus 1. This is just an example. When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, and this is, by the way, translate this to the temple because this was written during the law, which is the tabernacle, the tent. If you bring an offering of your animals from the herd of the flock, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he'll offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So for us, this would be this area in front of the priest's court, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So whoever's coming up to get close to God, he brings his animal with him and he lays his hand on the animal to identify himself with this sacrifice. The animal is going to be his atonement. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. So we've got this nice little... White courtyard now. It doesn't stay white for long. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the bull and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is the doorway of the tent of meeting. This big brass altar, guess what it starts looking like? It's covered with blood. Blood is splattered on it every time an offering is made. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Uh, This is not meant to be gross, but if you go to any grocery store and see a butcher at work. This is what was happening in this area. They're cutting up the animal. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. So they've got their altar here. The fire's being placed on it. Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, its legs he shall wash with water. The priest shall offer up in smoke, all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. This is one offering, guys, and this is the picture. Once this is started, once the temple is open, then there are people bringing their offerings. They are being slain here. Their blood is being drained to some degree in a basin. That basin is carried over here and the blood is splattered on the outside of this altar. You wonder why we need water here, all this water? It's because every animal that's offered has to be clean before it's burned on the altar. And all the utensils have to be cleaned and kept clean between the sacrifices. So if you were going up to this temple, you know what you'd have seen? You'd have seen smoke and fire coming up from this altar every day, all day. You know when God gives the law on Sinai, how does he come down? In smoke and fire. And the people are terrified. So anyone coming up to meet God, they knew that God's there, but I can't really get very close to him. And to get as close as I can, I've got to bring a substitute, an offering that will be my atonement, and that substitute's blood is going to be spilled, and it's going to be cut up, and it's going to be washed off, and its carcass is going to be put on this tall altar, and it's going to be burned up. So you can imagine, if you lived in Jerusalem, when you looked to the temple, you saw smoke and fire all the time. And when you came up to this area, <clears throat> the sheep may not, may have been quiet, you know, Isaiah 53, but the cattle were mooing, I guarantee, and the doves were flapping their wings, and this was a place of fire and smoke and blood. So on one hand, it's this place where God comes near, but on the other hand, it's this reminder that although he's there, I can't quite get close to him, and I need something to cover my sins to get as close as I can. So a Jew in Solomon's day, and for 400 years afterwards, this temple was a great blessing because it was God's dwelling with them on one hand, but it was a constant reminder of their sin and the separation that their sin had brought to them. Let me close with this uh, passage out of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 1. I'm I'm kind of pulling this out as I go. Uh, You know, the Jews knew there's God. I can get so close, but even to do that, I've got to have something that will cover my sins. And Hebrews, which compares Jesus to the Old Covenant and its requirements in chapter 10, talks about the offering. The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No matter how much blood got spilled around this altar, and no matter how many animals were sacrificed and burned, Hebrew says none of them could in the end actually cover your sins or mine. None of those offerings made by Solomon or anybody who followed or in the temple, in front of the temple Jesus went into, none of those offerings were efficacious in the end. None of them could actually do what needed to be done. Hebrews 10.10, By this will we have been sanctified, that is, made holy or set apart for God, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he has perfected For all time, those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit testifies to us For after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. This has all been taken away for us. We don't need the temple. And we don't need the altar anymore because Hebrews tells us the one offering that could cover our sins has already been made. The thought in Hebrews is, every time I go up and offer an animal, I'm reminded that I've got a sin problem. The the author of Hebrews says, but boy, if there was an offering that would really cleanse me once for good, there would be no further sacrifice. There'd be one, I'd be good to go, I'd be covered, and that would be it. And he says those bulls and goats, they could never do that, but there was one offering that could take care of that. That was Jesus. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, this is the trade on Herod's temple, the veil, that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You remember in this day, in this period, the high priest only was the only person, and he only once a year could actually walk through the barriers and go into the Holy of Holies. But we're told in Hebrews that now we've all been covered by the blood of the perfect sacrifice. Jesus has come in, as it were, to Solomon's temple. And he's the priest... And he's the offering. And he takes his own blood and he splashes the altar. He offers himself up on the altar. And then he walks through the holy place into the holy of holies and the doors stay open after him. So when we're told to have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, it's just as if all these barriers have been removed, the perfect sacrifice has been made, and there's nothing now that keeps us from God. We can go straight through. So as grand and glorious as Solomon's temple was, every Christian has it better than Solomon did. This is also why Jesus says of John the Baptist that the smallest, most insignificant person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Because every Christian, post-resurrection, has direct access to the Father. John the Baptist would have had to have gone. He was, by the way, he was of the priestly line. But he couldn't have just gone into the Holy of Holies. The least Christian, the most carnal Christian that has lived post-resurrection has a greater privilege than John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the greatest of all the Old Testament saints. So two things. Hopefully the slides give you an image when you're reading any of the stories about the temple or the temple up to the destruction, the deportation under Nebuchadnezzar. This is something of what it looked like. If you go online and type in Solomon's Temple under uh, images, you can find all kinds of uh, other pictures. Uh, Some are quite amazing. uh, But this gives you some idea, some picture, some image of any of the stories you read about the altar, the offerings, the temple. This gives you some image of what they might have looked like. But then on the other hand, we'll remember that As glorious as this was, for us, we've got something better. The perfect offering has been sacrificed. We don't need to worry about altars and holy places and restrictions. We've got something better. So we have this invitation to go into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God today, because that one offering has been offered for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is good stuff, but we've got it better. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for images and graphics and descriptions of what Solomon constructed in his day. and Lord, thanks for the passages that come up that tell us about your coming and joining with Israel there at this temple. Lord, better than that, thanks that you offer us into your very presence every day, all day, today because of the perfect offering of your Son. Lord, I pray that like a priest uh, coming before you that we take full advantage of what it cost your son to get us into your presence, to get us into that holy place where you dwell. Uh, Lord, help us to, in that sense, be like those priests who are before you constantly. David said he'd rather spend a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, might we have that heart that since the way has been cleared, since we can come directly into your presence, help us to routinely do that, to make it our practice, to come before the throne of grace, Lord, to come into the holy place to join you in your word and in prayer. Father, I pray that as surely as your glory was manifest in the holy place by that cloud of glory, I pray that your spirit is reproducing your life and your glory in us. And that you're pleased as you see your son, the Lord Jesus, reproduced in us from glory to glory. Lord, thanks that you've given us better than Solomon had, that we are your temple, indwelled by the living God. Help us to offer up, Lord, to you those spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable, the fruit of our lips, Lord, giving glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.